the Lord for this opportunity. That was wonderful, special music that that we had. Uh, that was a huge blessing. And thank you so much just for allowing us to be here w- with you all. Tomorrow morning, we'll share a little bit about our testimony and where we've been. But it's true. I grew up on the mission field. My parents were missionaries there. I went when I was three months old. And then my wife and I, we originally were going to be missionaries in Venezuela. And we couldn't we couldn't stay there. They would not give a visa to my my wife. And so it was we had to come back off the field and figure out what the next step was. And uh, we had worked so hard to raise funds for Venezuela, and we could not stay there. So sometimes you can get caught up in in feeling that you can only serve God how, how you want to. And, and God says, <laughs> you, you be faithful to me, not to a certain title or to a place or anything like that. You be faithful to me. And so that's been an ongoing lesson that that I, we've been learning to be faithful to the Lord. The text that is for this missions conference is John 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 63. John chapter 6, verse 63. The, the context that we find this verse is in, is in a context of Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you take Jesus' words or John's words that Jesus has done these signs so that you may believe there in chapter 20. Uh, there are certain signs that Jesus has done throughout the, this gospel that, that John writes about. And these signs are different than just the miracles because they, the end result is that people are, are glorifying God ultimately. And this has, depending on how you count it, has two. One is the feeding of the 5,000. There's a multitude. Jesus has has walked around to the other side, the Sea of Galilee, and there's no food trucks. There's no taco stands. There, there's nothing. And uh, the people are hungry. And, and so Jesus asks, in a way, to tempt, to not to tempt, to test them. And they we don't have any money to pay for all the food that would be required. And furthermore, there's like no Panera around here to be able to bring in all that type of bread. And Andrew, who's always bringing somebody to Jesus, brings this little kid, and the kid has his his meal. And Jesus ends up doing th- this miracle. Uh, how how was the miracle done? He's he's passing the bread out, and as he's reaching in, it just keeps on coming out. How how does it do it? How, just the amazing power of Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it's just a fantastic miracle that that happens. And then after that, Jesus he knows that they want to make him king, and, and he he separates himself out. He, he, it's not his time for that. And his disciples go across, uh, and as they're going across, a storm comes in, and they're rowing and rowing, and and Jesus just is walking on the water. You know, he's like going past them, and and they see him, and of course they get super scared. You know, and he's like, "It's just me. If it were me walking on the water, I think I would have been like." You know, but doesn't do that. He immediately tells him, "Hey, it's just me," and and it says that he gets in the boat, and immediately they're on the other side, and, and that is another one how how they 
instantly after rowing and rowing and rowing, trying to move the boat over, Jesus allows them to just be. So there they are in Capernaum, and, and Jesus goes into this, this teaching where he's talking about typology. He, he's using the bread of manna that his fathers ate, their fathers ate, and, and he says, that, that bread pointed to me. I, I am the true bread of heaven. And they're like, well, give us that bread, you know? And he's like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, what? And even his disciples are like, this is too hard. We're, we're out of here. It, it, it's in this context that, that Jesus says, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. They, they are life. The words are life. Now, it is true that when Jesus speaks, he can cause the dead to have life. Lazarus, come, come forth. And, and out comes Lazarus, right? But in this context of how it gives life, uh, the people have to listen and, and believe. It's not enough to follow alongside. There, there's Judas. He's following alongside. But, but there's no life there. He's not putting faith in what Jesus is saying. Now, how, how is this life? Uh, how is this life that he gives? What, what type of life is that? Especially as we think about in missions and going to, to other countries, think about evangelism here in Charlotte, and we're offering people life. What, what type of life are we, we suggesting to them? Because as far as I know, all the apostles died. And furthermore, all the people of the first century and the second century and the third century up to now, they've died. So when we offer them life, what are we offering them? <clears throat> I think one of, one of the great places to look at that is, is what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, uh, he, he offers him eternal life, uh, a life that is eternal. But what I want to do is go to Colossians. And in Colossians, we're going to look at three sermons, and we're going to end right at four o'clock, right? That's when we go downstairs. Yep. So <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at the first Three verses three through verse eight. Uh, do you all mind standing with me for the reading of God's word? Colossians chapter one, verses three through eight. This, this is the word of the Lord. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, always praying for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all saints, for the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit as it does also in you, since the day you heard of it and knew of the grace of God in truth. For you also learned of Epaphras, your fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Father, I pray now as we're going to look at this text, that your Spirit would illumine our minds so that we can understand. Father, I pray that we'll understand not just as a 
as an academic practice of having more facts, but rather it will be an understanding that, that moves us to act differently, uh, to act differently in our homes, with our neighbors, and, and Father, maybe even to other countries. I pray now that we will seek to become more like Christ through this text and less and less like ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Here, Paul is writing to this church. It's a church in the city of Colossae, and he, he is writing them to encourage them about how Christ is supreme, the excellency of Christ. And he's, he's focusing on this, on how Christ is supreme. And in this, the ministry of in Colossae probably started in Acts chapter 19. If you read there in Acts chapter 19, you remember that uh, Apollos is in Corinth and he's teaching up there in Corinth. And, and Paul has gone over to Ephesus and, and he finds some disciples, some people that were baptized by John the Baptist, and he corrects their theology. And, and, and then he's teaching in the synagogue. And it's while he's teaching in the synagogue that there are some people in the synagogue that are against him. And they're against specifically about what he's talking about, the way, the, the gospel, and and what it does. And so he ends up moving out to the school of Tarnirus, and he continues teaching there for at least two years. Verse 10 of chapter 19 says that all of that part of Asia ends up hearing the gospel. And, and so a lot of people think that it is at this time that Epaphras is at Ephesus, is trained there, goes back to his hometown of Colossae, shares the gospel, and, and these people get saved. And then sometime afterwards, Paul's in prison and he's writing them to encourage them in, in, in the fact that Christ is so sovereign and supreme and his excellency depend, uh, demands that we live differently. Now, as we look at this, believers must be faithful to serve Christ by sharing the gospel, and by teaching others to love. That, that's what we're going to look at, and that's what I'm going to encourage us to do here, but not just here. Maybe God is calling some here to, to Spain. So we're going to think about, we're going to think about Charlotte, but, but don't, don't think only of Charlotte. God might be calling you to the Basque country. So here we are. We're looking at believers must faithfully serve Christ by sharing the gospel and teaching them to love. And we do this by having a correct understanding of the gospel. And we see that in verses three through five, having a correct understanding of the gospel. He says, we give thanks. That, that thanks there is an expression of being indebted or under obligation to uh, someone. And to whom is there a feeling of obligation or indebtedness to? Uh, well, it tells us to God, specifically, not just any God out there, but specifically to, to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, it limits who this God can possibly be. It's the one who has the Son named Jesus Christ. Uh, now, think about this. He, he is giving thanks to God, and, and the reason he's going to give thanks is because of the faith that he's heard of them and the love that they have for the saints. But he's giving thanks to God, and you would think, 
why is he giving thanks to God? Shouldn't he be giving thanks to them that they they had faith, that they are loving the saints? I mean, they're doing a good job. Shouldn't his thankfulness be towards towards them? But instead, it's it's thanks to God. Well, you say, well, what what did God do? Well, if we were to look in verse twelve, verse twelve, it says, "Giving thanks to the Father who has made us suitable partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light." Uh, it's God who has made them suitable partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. Uh, to think about that, that that God has made them partakers of an inheritance. Not only that, but verse 13, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us to the kingdom of his dear son. God has done this. A movement away from one kingdom into, as it says, the kingdom of his dear son. And then verse 14, in whom we have, talking about the son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of God sends his son to redeem us, to to buy us out of the slave market of sin so that we can have forgiveness of our sins. That's an incredible thing that God has done for us. And and because of that, he gives thanks to God. And he says specifically, going back to verse 3, he gives thanks to the Father uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, always praying for you. Now, God... God has all knowledge, and and he has access to all his knowledge all the time. My wife will start talking about somebody, and I'm like, I have to start searching through archives, and usually the archive's not there. You know, it's like lost somewhere, you know, and I'm searching through my mind, and I'm like, or like I'm driving somewhere, and I'm like, I think I've been here before, but I can't. God doesn't do that. He has all his information ever present. So he doesn't need us to pray to him. But this this awesome God, Paul comes before this awesome God and brings the Colossae believers before him in prayer. That's an amazing thing to think of, that that he would intercede on their behalf, bring them before this, this God who has saved them. He prays for them. And it says, how long has he been doing this? Well, since the day we we heard of your faith. Faith has this idea of, of, of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. Yeah, we are standing under this roof that looks like concrete, right? And we are we are trusting that these walls are going to hold this concrete up. We're deeming that these walls are trustworthy enough for us to be standing here. They have faith. They are believing in the trustworthiness of something or someone. And we have here a small little prepositional phrase, in Christ Jesus. It's not faith as in we're going to hope everything's going to be all right. It's a faith that's focused in the person of Jesus Christ. They, they, it's not just in general that the universe is going to be kind to us. It's not just, you know, we're going to send out good vibes and we're hoping that good vibes are going to come back to us. They have a trust in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Not only do they have a faith in Christ Jesus, which is that faith is what saves them, 
They also have a love that you have for all the saints. Love. Now, how, how are we going to define this love? Well, it's a, it's a feeling that you get when the lights are dim and the music is just right and they brought you an extra thing of breadsticks at the Olive Garden and you feel love, right? They're warm. That, that's, not, that's not this word here. We find the better definition of this word in John 3.16 that for God so loved the world, he, he gave a sentiment towards the world. No, he didn't give a sentiment towards the world. He, he gave his son. It, it involved a sacrifice, a sacrifice on his part. So they, they have a faith, which is that they're believing the words about Jesus Christ, and then that those words are moving them to an action, and it's an action towards all the saints. Now, that's great when all the saints are nice, isn't it? When all the saints are behaving, when my wife's not burning my toast, when my husband's not throwing the socks on the floor, when my kids are respecting me, when my, my parents are not telling me to take out the trash, we say, yes, we can love all the saints. But what happens if you're in a, a situation where the saint is not acting all saintly? They're having a love for all the saints. What happens if you're in a, in, in, a, in a church setting and the church members are not acting as saints? These individuals are having a faith in Jesus, and it's demonstrated out through a love for all the saints. Not all the nice saints, not all the rich saints. Remember, that was a problem over in James. You sit up here and you go sit down over there, you know. No, it's not like that. They have a love for all the saints. Now, it, it's going to tell us why in verse, verse 5. We have that four, and that four, that four is going to give us a, a reason, a purpose clause, per se, or a result clause. The, the reason why they are having this is for the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Hope. Uh, hope here has this idea of looking forward to something that that's that's good. It's opposite to dread. Dread looks forward to something that you don't want, like collard greens. You know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's looking. That's dread, right? And but but hope, hope looks forward, and and it's it looks forward with, with anticipation. I'm I'm looking for this. Now, would we characterize our lives as a life of hope? Would we say, yeah, I, I have hope today. And I would say, praise the Lord, fantastic. Of course, the next question would be, what is your hope in? Wow, I, I, I hope, I really hope that I'm going to get that promotion at, jo at the job. I mean, I could use the extra 50 cents an hour, and if I would just get that, Oh man, that that would be really good. Or I hope, I hope, I hope that the doctor says I'm cancer free. I, I just if he would tell me that, you know, or, or maybe your hope is in, in something. I, I hope that my spouse gets saved. Oh, if if she would only, if he would only get saved, that that would change things around in our family. But their hope it isn't in anything like that. 
It says in verse 5, for the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. This word hope, interestingly enough, the first occurrence of it is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 26, and it's where Peter is preaching, and he's using the Joel prophecy, and he's talking about the completion of, of everything that God has promised, and that is the hope. That is the hope. In fact, he gets the he gets the Sadducees and the Pharisees to debate each other when he talks about the hope. He says that he believes in the hope of the resurrection, and they start going at each other. The, the word is used also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, and he's talking about the farmer. The farmer plows in hope. He's, he's anticipating something. He doesn't have it yet. But he's out there working, struggling, because he's looking forward to getting something in the future. This, therefore, points to a a future or eschatological reality. They are having faith, and they are showing that faith and love towards the saints because they have a hope. Not a hope here that could be taken away, but a hope that's laid up for them in heaven. Uh, of which you've heard, it says, before, in the word of the truth of the gospel. This, this truth, this hope, is, is eternal life with God the Father. This is eternal life, this hope that they have. It's the completion of all the promises of God. This hope that they're anticipating. This is the life that, that Christ is talking about in, in John chapter 6. This eternal hope that they have, it's laid up in heaven. It's not anything that anybody can take away. They have it in heaven. It's secure. And it's the truth of the gospel, the word of the truth of the gospel. This is, this is an amazing thing to think about. Here they have this, this hope, not dread. They don't look at the future and dread and, oh, you know, I, I just know we're about to start World War III. No, they're looking at the future with hope, and therefore they're living with faith and love towards other people. It's hard to live with love towards other people if there's no hope. It it really is. And, And if you don't have a hope, if you're not meditating on this hope that you have, you're not going to invite other people to come with you, i.e. evangelism. Because you're not thinking about that. You're just thinking on, on here instead of thinking of up there. In Spain, what they desperately need, they're living for, for today. They're living for the next party. They're living for the next exciting thing. The, but they're not living for a hope. And what they need desperately in Spain is to live for this hope, to hear the gospel so they can put faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Now, the, the next point is, so we saw that by having a correct understanding of the gospel, but we also must have a correct practice of the gospel. And we see that in verses 6, which has come to you, talking about this gospel, which has come to you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit. So now he's he's using a figure of speech about the gospel. He's making it as as something that grows and produces a fruit, as it does also in you since the day you heard it and knew of the grace of God in truth. This this gospel has a seed effect that grows in and produces a fruit in the person. 
And it says that they have learned this now, verse 7, as you have also learned of Epaphras. Now, who in the world is Epaphras? We don't know anything about Epaphras. I mean, not hardly. We know he's a dear fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ. In Acts chapter 19, when it says that the gospel goes out through Asia, he doesn't even mention Epaphras. It mentions Epaphras a couple more times, but it doesn't really say anything about him, who he is or or what he does. He's mentioned in Philemon, verse 23, chapter 4, verse 12, but that's it. We don't know anything about him. We don't know his family. We don't know where he went to Bible college. (laughs) We don't know where his church membership was, et cetera, et cetera. We don't know anything. And therefore, the vagueness of it makes it so that Epaphras could be any of us. He's not mentioned as somebody with super administrative skills. He's not somebody that's mentioned, and, and, and Epaphras was like Apollos. He could really teach. We, we don't. He could be any of us, except for the fact that he is a fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. And that's where maybe he would be different, because we would have to ask ourselves, are we a fellow servant? Are we a faithful minister of Christ? Epaphras saw a need, and he went in and served. There's a a book, the first book of the Lord of the Rings. It has a character in it called Tom Bombadil. And Tom Bombadil, uh, he, if you've read the book of the Lord of the Rings, there's a ring that must be thrown into the the fires of Mordor or whatever. And, And, and Tom Bombadil, he takes the ring from Frodo and he puts it on and it has no effect on him at all. He can wear it and he doesn't disappear. It doesn't doesn't cause him to crave the ring of power. And so Frodo says, come with us, come with us. And you throw away the ring into the fires of Mordor. And Tom Bombadil says, I can't leave. Who's going to water the flowers? I can't just leave my wife and and her flowers won't won't, won't be watered. Here's a person that has the capability and the opportunity, but is so preoccupied about flowers that he won't go. And I think the difference between Epaphras and some of us is that there was an opportunity and he and he went. And he went to go share this gospel of truth that gives life. It says, who also declared uh, to you your love in the Spirit. So he comes back and he says, hey, these people have love, but it's not just love in general. We hear a lot about people needing to love right now, but it's a love in the spirit. It, it's, it's qualified that it's not just any type of love that I feel, but rather it's a love that's in accordance with the spirit. And, and that's what lacks here in Charlotte. There's a lot of people that want to say, oh, we got to love, we got to love, we got to love. But it, it, it's not this, loving in the Spirit. The, the love in the Spirit says, I can't love this. I can't love sin. Uh, love in the Spirit says, I, I have to love righteousness and justice. It qualifies how we're supposed to love. Here we, we see that having a correct practice of the gospel, it's having the opportunity and taking them. That, that's hard sometimes. Sometimes we don't know what to say. I was at a 
church event and the, a person was talking to me and he was saying about how he he hopes that he's been good enough to get into heaven. And I'm like, I'm about to ruin this whole, <laughs> you know, event by telling this guy he, you know, it's not being about being good. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. And, and so I, I shared with him and I said, you know, it's not about being good. Uh, Christ came to save sinners. It's about putting your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I believe. I'm like, that's not what you believe at all. And sometimes we don't know, we don't know which way to turn in the conversation. And you keep on trying to show them the, the, the scriptures, but, but that's what we have to do. Epaphras had an opportunity and he took it. And, and if we're going to reach Charlotte or if we're going to reach Bilbao, it's by having these opportunities and taking advantage of them, of being that fellow servant, that faithful minister of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we think about the gospel and, and about your word and how your word gives us life, and as we're exploring what does it mean to have life in you through Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that we'll realize that we have true life by having faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray now that as we contemplate our own life, that we have a correct understanding of the gospel and that we will share that gospel with those who are around us. In Jesus' name I pray. All right. We're going to close with a hymn, and I'll say a word in just a moment. 